Honesty Now, episode 487, EuroBSDCon Interviews, part 2, recorded on the 15th of December 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other with a bit of a donation, then check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bsdnow. Appreciate it if you do that. Hello, I'm your only host for this episode today, Benedikt Reuschling, because Tom and Alan taking some well-deserved time off, and I kind of keep the lights on for <laughs> at least this episode. But uh, not too shabby. I have only a few things to say today. First of all, uh, this is a special episode. Remember last week's episode, we were talking with uh, two people at EuroBSDCon, and now we finally released these interviews. But uh, it wasn't the only interview that we did there. There is one left over, and that is the one with John Baldwin, who is a longtime committer. Michael W. Lucas once called him the big committer at one point or the great contributor. And um, yeah, that's certainly warranted. And the uh, interview topics are basically where uh, John started his early uh, career in the BSDs and how he got involved in that and what he did over the years. So that was quite interesting. And so we thought this would be a separate episode to fill in this New Year's episode that we have here. Uh, but we also have something else from EuroBSDCon. Remember, this was in back in September at Vienna. Finally, we could make it there. And people went there uh, by the uh, sponsorship from the FreeBSD Foundation. One of them was Patrick McAvoy. Actually, hopefully that's, that's proper pronounced the uh, last name here. Sorry, Patrick. And um, Patrick is the one who actually made all the streaming work. So for the people who couldn't attend or didn't want to attend for various reasons, they could listen in to Patrick's streams that he provided. And he also provided the streaming for the whole uh, conference. And what that involved, I only had a small grasp how much work that would involve. But after reading his trip report, which I'll be happy to read to you here, uh, I have a much better appreciation and understanding for the amount of work that he did. And yeah, the hours that he spent for this. So that's definitely appreciated, Patrick. Thank you. But let's get right into the trip report on the FreeBSD Foundation's website. So we're kind of stretching out the interview a bit for you to tease you a little bit here. Okay, let's start with Patrick's trip report. So it starts with, uh, for me, the road to EuroBSDCon Vienna started in July of 2022, when I started quizzing board members for details on the conference location and shopping around for rental equipment with the help of the other stream team members. Or the members. While the details on the conference space were scarce, I kept at it, quizzing mailing lists and web sleuthing in my way, or my way to contact at the Technical University of Vienna. So I was very excited to see everyone in person again, and it was well worth the effort. Oh yeah, you were not alone in that. Okay, the Dev Summit. Rental gear and streaming service setup. The first day I landed, met a few conference speakers in the hotel lobby, dropped my things off, and ran to meet the rental equipment company representative I had been working with remotely thus far. We reviewed the equipment list and walked through the layer or the layout of the gear and played with the Blackmagic Windows client for tweaking the streaming units. With the BM client and some research into the technical details and tweaking an XML file to add your own streaming server, I got to work prepping for using the equipment we had arranged to rent. 
I spent my first full day in Vienna further reviewing the Blackmagic software, that's what VM stands for, finalizing the rental equipment list that ran three single-spaced pages and other prep work. So already quite a list. I also created the Hold Music pre-stream video, complete with a nice rendition of the Blue Danube, and did some more tweaking of the scale engine setup to get us ready for our first streams the next day. Okay, using the rental equipment on these smaller dev rooms would be overkill, so I relied on this, quote, streaming system in a backpack, unquote, collection of gear I have been building while streaming nice bug meetings over the years. Little did I know that the time that this collection of HDMI adapters and laptops would be a cornerstone of the EuroBeastCon streaming and recording system. Dun, dun, dun. So little foreshadowing here. Then FreeBSD and NetBSD Summit Day 2 streaming. That uh, went quite well. So those two were streamed with the equipment he brought with him. Uh, he likes to use these summits to get the streaming links and streaming servers as a whole, like a test right before the uh, bigger conference starts. They all work well, and he was glad to stream both FreeBSD and NetBSD Summit community contributions. All right, here we go. Setting it all up for the main show. Friday evening after he streamed the FreeBSD and NetBSD Summit events, he was given the room assignments for the presentations. Next, EuroBeastCon board members, and he transported two carloads of rental gear into the university and started the process of putting together the three rental streaming systems for the presentation rooms. That evening, surrounded by countless road cases, I had two unexpected and unpleasant surprises. First, I got a call from the other member, uh, the only other member actually, of the stream team, informing me he would not be coming to Vienna to help with setup or streaming the conference. And second, that the captive portal we were working with over Wi-Fi was also being used for Ethernet throughout the conference talk spaces. So, my prep work for streaming from the rental Blackmagic devices went out the window. Bad, right? So here we go. What to do then? I was not going to be able to stream a single word of the conference with the current setup plans. I had 12 hours to figure out how to get all this gear to stream via a different route. And with the last minute cancellation, I was doing it all alone. Or so I thought. My wife always gives me the best advice. And this instance was no exception. Her advice was simple and very effective. This is a community. Ask for help. Very well so. I knew the Blackmagic streaming equipment could be used as a webcam via OBS, so I went that route of least resistance. Only problem was that the solution would need three total Windows laptops, and I only had two. And yeah, let, let's ask for a Windows installation at a BSD conference. Good luck with that. That's my own turn. That's not in the report. So uh, Patrick turned to Christoph with a far out request. <clears throat> I need a Windows laptop uh, to use for streaming and I need it tonight. Sure enough, uh, the DCH came through. I got a message that he was going uh, or doing a final backup of his laptop and you can nuke it. Oh yeah, great. Uh, I was never so happy to hear his familiar Kiwi accent so he called for drop off. Okay. Uh, that previous laptop plus a trusty Ventoid thumb drive with a 10, with 10 ISO was away. Thank you, Christoph, DCH, and Ventoy.net. So he opened up Prima, uh, where he had some monitoring, or had been monitoring the pre-conference chit-chat, and every request he made was answered. Help carrying gear to each of the rooms, done. Random bits of gear that would make it all work, provided. Food to keep me from collapsing, procured. The community came together to help me out of jam, and I could not be more grateful. 
One conference speaker even left a social gathering, bringing both his friend and his uh, girlfriend, and I had the delight of explaining that the gear he was helping me load was going to be used to stream his talk in 12 hours' time. <laughs> With their assistance setting up the hardware and cables in the talk rooms, I was able to babysit a fresh Windows install, then piece together three working streaming systems with recording, both locally and over at scaleengine.com. I had to cobble it uh, all together using the gear I had, and so the rental gear and the borrowed pieces bringing, uh, bridging those gaps. Once I got the first room confirmed streaming, I knew we would be okay. There were a few more surprises, such as other, uh, or some of the cameras were set up in German, natürlich, uh, but I got a working system out of it, and by 3.30 a.m.-ish, I had three rooms ready to go for the next morning. So that's, wow, some kind of engagement here. By all means, you're a great person, Patrick. Thanks for your effort. Um, Patrick ran back to the hotel, re requested a 7 a.m. wake-up call, and sent off an update email to the board of the EuroBSD Con Foundation and hit the sack. After a quick but very refreshing rest and a hotel breakfast, I was back at it. Okay, then the main show. Conference starts. Will it all fall apart? Will it be working all quite well? Well, I leave that up to you to read the rest of the trip report. To keep that a little bit of a surprise until you read it yourself. Okay, uh, it's time now for the interview that we did, as I mentioned, with John Baldwin at EuroBSDCon and... Hope you enjoyed it and find it interesting. No, say well, okay, we're recording now, so it's fine. Okay. Um, so we're here at EuroBSDCon 2022 with um, previous premier John Baldwin. Um, we're in Vienna. Uh, welcome to Vienna, John. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have him here. And uh, we love seeing people again after a long time pandemic. And uh, we grab some people and ask them questions that we do on the show regularly. So since John hasn't been officially on the show before, we asked him the question that we ask everyone, how did you get started with BSD and uh, how did it progress? Um, gosh, uh, when uh, at one point when I was in high school or uh, secondary school, depending on what your country is, um, I had a good friend who now works at Apple and we, this was back in the days of DOS um, and we wanted to have a really good multi-threaded BBS um, and so at the time, we started looking at the manual for the 3.6 and decided, oh, it has all these cool things like task state segments and so forth, and, and it has paging. You can do virtual memory with 32 bits. And so then we decided we needed to write our own operating systems. Then we could run our own BBS. And we also meant we had to write our own compilers and all sorts of things. And so we had a very long to-do list while I was in high school. Um, but after I had graduated high school and I ended up uh, going to my university, at my university, they actually used FreeBSD as their kind of Unix of choice for the undergraduates to use. Um, and so then rather, I kind of stopped trying to run my own operating system quite as much um, and instead started using FreeBSD in earnest. Um, I was a bit of an odd student at my school, I guess. So um, I insisted on using uh, FreeBSD as much as I could. I set up a little router with FinNet and this weird PPP setup with these weird phones. And, but for my roommate and I, so we could both be on the internet at the same time, I set up a little box running 22x with NAT and so forth with user space PPP. Um, and then later, uh, I remember my class in university, we were the guinea pigs for our OOP course that we had to use Java instead of C++. 
And I am pretty sure I'm the only student in my class who insisted on doing my Java work on FreeBSD and was like using beta versions of the open, of not open JDK, this was Sun's JDK at the time. But somebody had gotten to work on FreeBSD like a few weeks before my semester started or something like that. It was wow. sketchy. <laughs> doing all the work in Emacs and insisting on using X because that was just weird and broken in that way. Um, and I continued using uh, BSD kind of as much as I could and kind of pushed myself to do that going forward. Uh, and then by the time I was a senior in college, I was I, had, I was assistant then in my school and kind of managed our, our lab for undergraduate students. And so I did with Pico BSD and did all sorts of little things like that. Um, but I had started hanging out in IRC, which is how I got engaged with the FreeBSD community, um, staying up until 2 a.m. every night and then still getting up at 6 o'clock for stuff I had to do for college. Um, uh, and I got uh, my... I managed to kind of get commit access initially by working on documentation. So I actually started out live with DOS. I came into the back door of DOS in a way. And uh, I think August of 99 is when I got my commit bit. But I was also working quite a bit with Mike Smith on IRC. And before too long, I was hacking assembly stuff in the promoter. Um, and then uh, when I graduated from school, I had a choice in jobs. I could take some... Uh, slightly more cushy job staying home on the east coast of the U.S. Or I could take less money to move to the Bay Area to work for some, like, for one of the CD-ROM, which was a bit of a seat of the pants opportunity, but it meant hacking on FreeBSD. So I took that chance, and I was supposed to go work on a new installer and a bootloader for i64, and instead I worked on SMPNG. Yeah, cool. <laughs> which is kind of a bizarre left turn. That wasn't what I was supposed to work on. But then once I started working on it, they kept paying me to still work on it. And so that's kind of how I it ended up becoming from dot committer to kernel hacker and kind of didn't really do any of the work I was hired to do. That's a, a crazy similar route to how Alan Jude got involved in the project. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. he started in docs and then he hacked on the bootloader. <laughs> yes, bootloader is a nice little problem. Okay, I, I don't think Kyle would agree, but he's just been stuck <laughs> at this forever. Right, so what have you done in FreeBSD recently that you can blame me for? Um, I do various things in in uh, FreeBSD. I've Hacked on lots of places in the kernel. Um, I continue to do. I haven't done as much stuff, I guess, with kind of locking and multi-threading and synchronization recently. Uh, it's been more work carried on by other folks. But I've done lots of device driver and infrastructure things and changes to better support ACPI and PCI and like hot plug PCI a few years back. Uh, more recently, one of the projects I've worked with um, is the folks at Netflix came up with a framework for. Um, performing the kind of bulk security part of TLS in the kernel for their use case. And I helped them with kind of um, massaging it a little bit to be a little more upstreamable and getting it upstreamed into the tree, as well as getting the patches for OpenSSL merging to OpenSSL, and then extending it to work uh, to support kind of accelerated TLS that's on some smart NICs. So there are NICs that can do it. And I kind of helped extend their framework that was previously software TLS only to support NIC TLS. Okay, that's really cool. Um, so you've been you've been around for a while, let's say. Um, which 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 things you've worked on uh, originally have gone away that you're most sad about? We must have stripped that something. Alpha support. Oh no, so I'm not sad. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> one one of my what, <laughs> uh, I feel like I think it might still be true that if you look at the GitHub summary for me on FreeBSD.org, I think I'm a net reduce, reducer of lines instead of adding, <laughs> um, which I which I think comes down to removing alpha, for example. Um, <laughs> so it's a little bit of cheating, but I, I'm actually rather proud that it's 
net production rather than it adding as much. I, I think uh, the, the producer Jason would be annoyed if he didn't ask how you got involved with the, the alpha core and, and what your role was. So when I was one of the things I worked on early on um, when we were doing SMP work, we started with uh, what was a big code drop from BSDOS kind of or BSDI and the other yeah BSDOS BSDOS and the way some of their code was structured, uh, they had a lot of stuff duplicated in machines for the backends. We started out using that so. Uh, we had like almost all the mutex code was I'd create six specific at the time. And so Alpha was our first other architecture to try to A, bring SMP up, which Doug Rapson had done the early work for, um, but then also kind of also kind of lifted over onto the SMP and G world with iThreads and so forth. And I ended up doing kind of that work to get Alpha up and running with iThreads and then Alpha SMP up. And as part of that, I also tried to figure out clean abstractions and also planning for IE64 and the way it handled memory barriers with its atomics so that we could move most of the mutex code to be machine independent, um, for example, and, and, and kind of uh, clean up a bunch of that stuff. And that's kind of how I ended up working with Alpha. It was our good first way of, and Alpha SMP particularly forced a lot of decisions about making the SMP code not live all under SysI386 where it was at the time and kind of very hacky and forced us to clean up some things. Okay, so I mean, there's there's always the, um, the adage that comes from uh, OpenBSD and NetBSD that portability helps with cleaner code. Do you think Alpha helped clean up FreeBSD? Uh, initially, yes, but Alpha had some weird quirks that weren't necessarily portable that caused them. And, and the real problem with Alpha, the architecture may have been nice, but it died. Um, and and that's that's that was you know, at some point it was legacy things to, legacy baggage to keep carrying for really old hardware that no one ever really had. Um, but yes, it, it certainly was a good motivator for helping uh, clean up a lot of the code and, and laid a lot of the groundwork for later when, for example, AMD sixty four came along. Some of the pain and suffering had already been done um, that we needed, or for other parts of ports that we had at the time, like Spark sixty four. Like some of the Alpha had paved the way for pulling some of the things apart in the kernel, at least stuff that I worked on so that it was cleaner to add more architectures going forward. Uh, so you said earlier that you worked on the PCI hot plug stuff and I, I think I remember that that sort of gone away. Um, Card bus was integrated with this. Uh, well this is PCI Express hot plug okay. um, which is well it's also kind of gone away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's still there uh, but newer PCI Express standards and things like Thunderbolt use newer versions of this that we don't yet support. Um, in fact, actually, I'm not the most authoritative source on it, but I've heard about things like downstream port control DPC, which is kind of supplanted native PCI Express hot plug for, I think, most modern systems now. Do you think there's a, a natural step we should take forwards for enabling things like Thunderbolt and plugging you know, more interesting hardware into ports on laptops and computers rather than being integrated with the system? Because we, there's always this natural development of technology where there's, you know, the standard just gets revved up. Sometimes you can just skip the stuff in the middle and you get something very useful and you don't have to deal with all of the baggage. Do you think we have to follow the full train or? Oh, you mean, for example, for USB 4, there's yeah, steps we USB can. 4. I think all the suffering is actually getting to the USB 4 endpoint. Um, I'm not sure there's much in the middle that we would skip that wouldn't hurt us. Okay. I, there, now, there are other cases where that's true. So, one of the design philosophies of Beehive was to depend on an assumed hardware acceleration and skip a lot of pain and suffering in the middle and don't have to do like a full Zen dominant thing. Uh, not that we don't, we don't also aren't put on Zen, but, but for Beehive, we assumed we have hardware acceleration and that simplifies Beehive quite a bit. 
and we assume we have nested paging, for example, in Beehive, and that simplifies it, simplifies it quite a bit. And I think that's a very pragmatic choice. We have some similar choices, even um, dating back to SMP support on i386, long, long ago. There's still code in Linux today to support these weird external APICs you can get with 486 systems, um, and we never bothered supporting any of that. Uh, also, uh, one my other very obscure thing I worked on um, 20 years ago uh, is how you handle figuring out what IRQ, um, a given PCI device would assert when it's zero point off. And ACPI came along and standardized some of these things, but in the pre-ACPI world, there was this old table and potentially you could have specific drivers for specific kind of interrupt routers, and we didn't bother doing any of that. We kind of used whatever the table supports, and then we supported ACPI, and we never, <clears throat> we never kind of bothered backfilling support for older systems before ACPI, um, and which would have been some old laptops, and, we, and they were kind of buggy perhaps when they rolled FreeBSD at the time in the very late 90s. But we never bothered to go back and backfill that once we were kind of using the newer thing with ACPI going forward. Um, and I think actually you can find the drivers for some of those at NetBSD, or at least they existed at the time, like in the early 2000s when I worked on the ACPI thing. There's, there's definitely a lot of stuff that is integrated into ACPI, and still ACPI and FreeBSD is difficult to, uh, it makes it difficult to port build architectures. And so um, devices that are FTD based, we don't have a framework for talking to batteries because we use ACPI batteries. So there's lots of power stuff where we're um, missing controls or we need to add stuff. Do you think this is baggage that's worth focusing to overcome or will just fall away? Um, hmm, I'm not sure. I, I'm not familiar with actually how power management in FTT world works enough to have a good qualified <laughs> answer to your question. Um, or at least to the detail of the way you've asked it. It is true, though, that you can't really create abstraction if you have more than one thing. This is part of why, going back to earlier, the SMP code was all buried in i386. Because until you actually had another thing to think about where the line should be drawn, you don't know how to do it well. I mean, I think it's, isn't that one of the adages of something, a statement from X11 folks, where like, you know, abstraction from one thing is terrible? Or something, <laughs> something along those lines. It's not quite the right quote, but it's, yeah. it's some derogatory comment about X that they kind of, took one example and made horrible abstractions on top. So to really figure out where the line should be drawn between ACPI style power management and what might exist in the FTT world, someone has to, who knows both has to sit down and kind of do that. But it would be premature to do it until we really had some level of support for FTT. Yeah, I, I think you're probably correct. I guess the, the baggage of ACPI is that you offload so much to the firmware that some of these things yes. are sort of trivial because the battery methods are just the firmware tells you something. That's true. Other stuff. Um, well, and so an interesting thing that's kind of related to that is um, in the power management world for system power management on on x86 is moving more towards a model that's probably more compatible with what happens, for example, in the ARM ecosystem, where instead of you kind of ask your firmware and say, "Hey, take me into S3 or this kind of global state," um, the, the S0x idle stuff that's now the kind of the new thing on x86 land requires the OS be more proactive about shutting down devices specifically and even shutting down subsets of devices and kind of having several different intermediate states. It just depends on the combination of things you have powered down and powered up. And it's much more dynamic than a big switch to go, I'm going to suspend now or I'm going to hibernate now or I'm going to be on now. Instead, it's a much more dynamic and you have to figure things out, which is, I believe, closer to how it has always kind of been on the ARM side, where you have to have much more specific knowledge of devices. So. 
I mean, that's going to help motivate us to get closer to that model. Um, and, and the kind of the big switch will probably become more of a legacy thing. Um, although it's pretty hard to get right, I think. Uh, I know my own X1 laptop, the initial BIOS that it shipped only did SCRIX, and then like Lenovo gave up and shipped a BIOS update that gave you options back because even Linux doesn't quite do SCRIX <laughs> quite well. And I'm not even sure Windows does it but so well, and so we still kind of need the SC approach for now. But that's that's where we're headed. Okay. Um, so we're at your BSD conference, by the room echoes, um, and you're here to speak. Um, yeah. Maybe give us a bit of a summary about what you're talking. Okay. Um, my talk this time is a cute little talk that uh, someone here actually suggested, uh, which it deals with how to write new little commands and the in-kernel debugger we have in DDD, which is one of the kernel debuggers we have. It's kind of the one that's built into the kernel that you can interact with directly if your kernel crashes. One of the limitations of DDB is it doesn't really understand type information. So it's not able to pretty print structures in the way that GDB you can just p star struct whatever and get the contents of your structure laid out. Um, in DDB you don't quite have that luxury. Um, so oftentimes if you are working with something that has complex data structures and you want to have a nice summary, you pretty much have to go write your own little custom command of a pretty printer for different types of structs. And so that's kind of the focus of most of the commands we have, custom commands we have in DDB in FreeBSD are those types of commands. And so I'm kind of giving an overview of how, what the, kind of what are the APIs you use to write that. So, which is mostly just using ddprintf, uh, but also some, uh, although a few more advanced topics, uh, ddb has its own kind of built-in parser for its syntax. So that kind of supports a general syntax for command lines where you have an address with a little modifier and an optional count. But there is, actually, there is a way that you can say, I want to do all my own parsing. And so I talked a little bit about options for that and how you can work with Alexa directly if you want to, for example, have a sample command where you can give it a name of a device as a string, and then it will go look up the device by name and print on its soft C pointer, which is one of the, like, the demo commands I have in my talk. Oh, cool. So <clears throat> I kind of talk about some of the more advanced things you can do or how you can define your own tables of commands, um, which is actually an example from code I work on. I work on with NetDeep on the Chelsea driver. We have our own set of commands that live under their own kind of tree in their own namespace, things like show t4, that's the baseline Chelsea driver. And then under that, there's subcommands. And so I talk about the structure you have to do for that if you want to have a module that's specific to your driver and you have your own commands that want to be self-contained kind of in your own namespace. Why would somebody want to extend DDB rather than um, writing scripts with Python for DDB? Um, well, so generally I would actually prefer, I much prefer using GDB myself personally. <laughs> um, unfortunately, most of my scripts are not in Python, but the really old ancient GDB script stuff because I started on them 15 years ago. Um, <clears throat> But sometimes when you are working with a machine, um, if it crashes right away, you just want a quick way to interact with it and not have to necessarily pay the cycle. Or maybe it's, a, it's something where you don't have an easy way to get um, net dumps out. So uh, in that case, DDB can be useful. Um, it can maybe give you other options to investigate. It's about kind of having multiple tools in your, in your toolbox and different options to take so that depending on the situation, you have other multiple ways of examining and what's going on and figuring out the best tool for the job at the, at the moment. Cool. I get the last question. Okay. So what else do you want to mention that we haven't covered? Yes. Anything that's on your mind that you want to motivate maybe or podcast to show or that's quite an open-ended question. I don't know if I have a good answer. Yeah, we always have that. <laughs> but sometimes people are like, uh, how do I become a kernel developer? 
you get that uh, sometimes in the, in the feedback and questions section. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So okay. you, you became an internal hacker because you had to be, right? Like, uh, you, no, you, were, I, you were digging really hard into the I wanted levels. to. Yeah, yeah you yeah. were interested. As a, I mean, so I don't know if it's correctly fair, but when, <laughs> when uh, I, I mentioned like wanting to hack on OSs when I was in high school, um, but at the time, I pretty much had the vision in my head that being a kernel hacker was like the hardest thing to do in the pinnacle of being a software person. And I'm not, I don't, I don't quite really think that's true anymore. I think there's lots of software that is hard and, and things that are doing. But I wanted to kind of be really good at what I wanted to do. And so I, that was like my goal was to do the things that I considered to be the hardest. And that's, so I, I was just going to crawl over broke people's ass to get there. Um, <laughs> that, like, and I you was, enjoyed the challenge. But I mean, that was just my goal was to get there, um, I guess. And, and then, I don't know, it's, the kernel is just a big C program. It's actually not that hard, um, relatively speaking, if, if you're okay with C and assembly. Um, mostly C. You don't have to do much assembly. Assembly for me is like a treat. I don't get to do it often enough. I've, kind of. I've never written assembly for video feed. I've oh, never, never had to do this. I, I mean, like, I mean, most of the time, your job is to get out of assembly as quick as you can. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so most of my assembly is either in boot code, where you like you have no choice, you're very space constrained. Um, uh, I worked recently on things like Cherry BSD, where we're bringing up you know Cherry extended versions of architectures like RISC V or something, and so you have to deal with stuff in low core and kind of your exception handlers and how that works and some of that, or like a couple routines like copy in and copy out are written in assembly. So updating those to work. That's that's where I get to play with assembly sometimes. I mean, you definitely didn't answer our question, but you want to use more assembly. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's like a guilty pleasure, but I know it's a bad thing. It's like you, you, don't, you don't want too much, you know, too much sugar on the donut sort of thing. Okay. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. And we're back from our interview with John Baldwin. Thank you, John, for agreeing to be interviewed by us. And uh, you had some very interesting things to say. And it's kind of interesting to see how you became, you know, the contributor that you are today. And uh, yeah, the involvement in the community with your uh, core seats and in other ways to support the project is greatly appreciated. So that's pretty much all that we have for you today, this week and for this year, because that's pretty much the end of this year's recording for us or for me at least and of course there will be a fresh new episode out in 2023 which uh, should probably be around here soonish maybe in a couple of hours by the time you listen to this or already you're already in the new year uh, whatever it is i hope you have a great 2023 with uh, health and happiness and yeah, hopefully you stick around with the BSDs in one way or the other. I definitely look forward to meeting people again at conferences, which will hopefully happen in 2023 more than in previous years. All, you know, social distancing and protections and masking uh, as required. But at least we have a way to directly talk instead of having, you know, video chats all the time, which is kind of a good thing, but yeah, it's kind of tedious and you know, the personal interactions are the best. Okay, definitely leave us comments uh, about any kind of episode or anything you want to tell us to our feedback email, which is feedback at bsdnow.tv as always. And thank you for listening not only to this episode, but for all the other ones that we produced in this year. And I want to also thank 
my co-host again, Tom and Alan, for well, sticking with me and uh, producing these nice episodes every week for you. And of course, JT, who does all the behind-the-scenes magic. It's definitely appreciated for uh, doing all the, you know, grunt work, if you want to say, uh, behind the scenes to get all this show out, produced, recorded, rendered, cut, uh, published, whatever is also involved that I have no idea about. And the time he spends is definitely making this episode much better. And for me personally, I want to also thank all the listeners that were sticking with us throughout the years and hopefully also in the next year. It's great to talk to you and reading your email feedback or whenever you have a chance to talk to me directly. Um, that's always interesting. And I see a lot of people listen to the show and it's kind of good to see that people uh, like this format and us giving you the weekly news of BSD, which are pretty much also as interesting to us as they are for you. And we hope to uh, get the BSD uh, crowd a bit more informed about what's happening in all these projects because it's kind of hard to keep track of all these things going on. And we also look uh, for more people to be interviewed. Uh, if you're volunteering, then reach out to us. We'll be happy to arrange something there. And now I wish you a happy, healthy, and well, good 2023. See you next year. Thank you.